we're back to our regularly scheduled programming, thanks to the uh, ceasefire unilaterally imposed by the Israelis. Um, so we'd like to thank um, Netanyahu, uh, no longer prime minister, for um, declaring that unilateral ceasefire uh, to allow us to return to the Civilization series. Um, That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> we've concluded... Uh, we've concluded our little mini series on Islam and imperialism. So we did the Turkey, Ottoman Empire, Iran, uh, Persian Empire, and Afghanistan. So now, um, a topic that deserves and has many, many, many podcasts of its own, I suppose, is um, we will call it Yankee imperialism, right, Dave? Okay. Um, and specifically Yankee imperialism, because, uh, you know, this this imperialism that we're going to talk about led to the formation of the American Anti-Imperialist League. So they started using this word around this time um, to describe it. And uh, we're talking about um, specifically, our focus will be the Spanish-American War, uh, during which... The U.S. acquired the imperial territories of Cuba, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're also going to spend some time on Hawaii. The, the before, Just before all of this, these acquisitions is when the U.S. acquired Hawaii through a, a 19th century regime change operation. <laughs> Extraordinaire. Um, or you could see it as a continuation of the Indian Wars that followed the Mexican-American War, of course. Mm-hmm. But I, um, oh, I think this episode is uh, very important, especially for uh, American listeners. <clears throat> I have a suspicion that many of them will find uh, <laughs> that this is news. There's mm-hmm. a great deal about these topics that are largely unknown in the U.S., uh, we were just discussing before beginning the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riot, which I was surprised. The reaction in the United States seems to have been, what? There was a race riot? It was news. Yeah. So that's 1921. And it was one of these, I mean, it was in some ways like late in terms of the post-reconstruction destruction of uh, prosperous and successful black communities, uh, but yeah. Tulsa, Oklahoma had one, uh, and you know, the... we covered it in our uh, episode on statues. Ah, yes, okay. So you can go back to that, but you know, the point is, the authorities and a white mob uh, was whipped up, and they destroyed pretty much the entire um, black. I guess, commercial uh, quarter uh, of the city. Um, Burned houses killed, I don't know, hundreds of people, I guess. Yes. And uh, they didn't, it's not, it wasn't like a one-off. The point was to destroy the the independent black economic base and that was uh, achieved. So it's not like these communities that were destroyed like Tulsa were able to then just you know pick up and and rebuild they were completely displaced and those um assets and you know things that they had built uh were destroyed so yeah. 
I think I was struck most though by how little known or completely unknown this episode was. Well, it's it's um, you know I I went to I always we always go to uh, James Lowen, right, the high school history teacher um, who wrote the book Lies My Teacher Told Me, where he goes over ten I think or so U.S. history textbooks in high school and how they're just full of lies and and you know most of the most interesting stuff is not in there yeah, and then omissions. yeah and then he says at the end you know you or maybe at the beginning he's like students hate history <laughs> you know and he's like why would students hate history uh it's because it's you know they they took they take anything that could be challenging or intellectually interesting out of it because hist- it's because history is so important that they make sure that it's boring and nobody likes it. <laughs> yeah. So on that subject, I'm going to identify my sources, which I haven't done a lot, but I will in this case. So I relied on a biography of Teddy Roosevelt by Pringle from 1931, the Pulitzer prize winning biography of teddy roosevelt are we gonna learn about this pulitzer character at all a little little bit interestingly (laughs) enough but my main source was uh howard zinn a people's history uh if you are american and you have not read howard zinn please you should the um the subset of our listeners that have prop that are American and haven't read Howard Zinn is probably smaller than the subset that have in the sense that probably people who are listening to this are, are aware of it. Do, do you know how I heard of it, Dave? I heard of it because I was watching Goodwill hunting. Yep. And uh Goodwill hunting and Matt Damon is talking to Robin Williams and they're you know, they're rapid fire back and forth because Matt Damon is trying to figure out whether Robin Williams is another, you know, useless psychologist that he has Mm -hmm. to go to. And they fire off a bunch of stuff. And then at one point, um, you know, Damon says, you've got all these books, but they're the wrong books. And, and, uh, and Robin Williams says, yeah, but what would be one of, what would be the right kind of book? Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. And then uh, Matt Damon said, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And then I thought, oh, well, if it's being, because I knew about Chomsky at that time. So I thought if if it's being mentioned at the same, <laughs> as, an, as a, as a wit, snappy reply to Chomsky, then I've got to check that out. So that was how I found it. Yeah, I experienced it in reverse. You told me about Zinn. I read it. Then I saw the movie and went, oh, all right. <laughs> I got that reference. <laughs> Yeah. So we're, we're going to start on uh, continental U.S., right? And right. talk about the conditions that uh, have give, give rise to the more, uh, more far-flung imperialism that we start to see in the night. Yeah. So here, here's the beginning of Chapter 11 of Zinn's A People's History of the U.S. In the year 1877, the signals were given for the rest of the century. The black would be put back. The strikes of white workers would not be tolerated. The industrial and political elites of North and South would take hold of the country and organize the greatest march of economic growth in human history. They would do it with the aid of and at the expense of black labor, white labor, Chinese labor, European immigrant labor, female labor, 
rewarding them differently by race, sex, national origin, and social class in such a way as to create separate levels of oppression, a skillful terracing to stabilize the pyramid of wealth. There's a lot in there to unpack. Yeah. So this era, the late 19th century, is for the United States a massive boom. Uh, some have called it the second industrial revolution. So where the British industrial revolution began with steam, steam power, the second industrial revolution for the United States was built on steel, electricity, coal, and oil. And they had at their, uh, you know, to help them out, the natural wealth of, of most of the continent. So a, a golden opportunity here to take advantage of all those resources, all that wealth, and to turn it into, well, private wealth, which they went ahead and, and did. So railroads, uh, by 1900, 193,000 miles of railroad. New inventions, telephones, typewriters, adding machines. And all of these machines sped up the work dramatically. Before the Civil War, it took 61 hours of labor to produce an acre of wheat. By 1900, that's three hours and 19 minutes. Wow. Which is, a, yeah, I mean, an absolutely massive 20-fold increase. So that's because of uh, motorized motorized yeah, machinery harvesting and so just like the british industrial revolution that's going to mean that a lot of the rural population will now be surplus and they will move to the cities hey that's to... a high school um john steinbeck <laughs> grapes of wrath i think was yeah. our grade 12 uh english literature class mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. lots of but that's i guess the 20s right uh, or depression, I can't remember. Oh, 30s, yeah. But, it, but it, I guess it had happened in a couple of waves before that. That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Lots of new advances. Manufactured ice, <clears throat> which means you can transport food over long distances, and that gave birth to the meatpacking industry. Uh, pneumatic drills. Now you can dig deeper for coal. So in 1860, they mined 14 million tons of coal, which sounds like an awful lot. But by 1884, it was 100 million tons. So more yeah. coal means more steel. More steel means more railroads. And yeah, so electricity begins to replace steam and electrical wire. Well, they need copper. So they're mining or producing 500,000 tons of copper by 1910. I think so, I've read similar kinds of things about Europe in Eric Hobsbawm's book, Age of one of the Age of whatever's. I don't remember which one. Yes, but, but uh, so a similar a similar process is going on in Europe, but uh, right. Except that America the, yeah. supersizes it as they That's it. start to do <laughs> in general from that, from this point on. That's it, and of course you need you still need human beings to do the back breaking dangerous work you know building the railroads uh, working in the meatpacking industry like all of these jobs and that means immigrants uh, Europeans 
Chinese, and we're going to put those people to work. And many of them will die doing that work. I suppose you just put that down to the cost of doing business, but, well, we'll get to that. Um, like the British Industrial Revolution, you had a massive wave of urbanization. So New York City between 1860 and 1914 grew from 850,000 to 4 million. Chicago went from 110,000 to 2 million. And Philadelphia tripled, almost tripled in size. Yeah, and I mean, there's some cities that you hear about in this period that must have been like way bigger and more important than they are now, like Detroit, Philadelphia, Baltimore, oh, yeah. which all seem like relatively small potatoes today compared to New York and L.A. and, you know, even San Francisco. But those were the big industrial cities back then. They were. Yeah. That's for sure. Um and like the British Industrial Revolution, you had inventors who became huge successes. Thomas Edison, for example, with all of his patents and electrical devices. But in some cases, it wasn't the inventor who profited. You have the businessman who uses other people's inventions, like Gustavus Swift, a butcher from Chicago. And he put together ice-cooled railway cars so that he could, you know, start the national meatpacking industry. Uh, James Duke used a new cigarette rolling machine uh, to produce 100,000 cigarettes a day. And by 1890, he had combined the four biggest cigarette producers to form the American Tobacco Company. So yes, there are self-made men, but there were far more wealthy men who took advantage of the opportunities. So the myth propagated by the Horatio Alger stories, the rags to riches myth, and, and it is a myth. Uh, they did a study of the origins of 303 uh, business executives from textile railroad steel companies from the 1870s. And, and they all came, out, came, they all landed uh, in New York Harbor with just the clothes on their back, I bet. Um, 90% came from middle or upper class families. Huh. But, the, well, but, I, the, but they, but they, <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. No, but the myth is extremely useful to propagate and propagate that myth. They did. It's like, uh, you too could win the lottery. Just, you know, work hard and so on. Well, <laughs> that's not how you get rich in America. The real way to, to build your fortune is to do it semi-legally with the collaboration of the government and the courts. And that collaboration, well, sometimes you have to pay for it. Thomas Edison bribed New Jersey politicians with $1,000 each in return for favorable legislation. Daniel Drew and Jay Gould spent a million dollars bribing the New York legislature to legalize one of their dodgy stock they watered down their stock and uh, on the Erie Railroad so according to Zinn the first transcontinental railroad was built with blood sweat politics and thievery the Central Pacific started on the west coast and went east they spent two hundred thousand dollars in Washington on bribes 
to get 9 million acres of free land and $24 million in bonds. And then they paid a construction company $79 million, which is over twice the price, to build the railway. And this construction company was actually them. So, you know, bribe the officials, get free land, get public money, and pay yourself more than the job is worth. And, you know, obviously pocket the profits. And the construction, I mean, the dangerous work, was done by 3,000 Irish and 10,000 Chinese. And they worked for one or two dollars a day. And they died in droves, of course. And, And both railways did the traditional weaving, twisting route to get a subsidy from every town that they went through. Give us money and we will have the railroad come through your town. If you don't pay us, we will leave you off the line and and you will fade into insignificance. Sounds a a little bit like Amazon, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and you know, um, it's, it's good that you're talking about these businesses because these businesses are honest uh, by comparison to, you know, the outright kind of, you know, the actions of, for example, uh, uh, an immigrant from Italy named Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guglielmo Tebaldo Ponzi. Uh, <laughs> you may have heard of Ponzi because Mr. Ponzi came up with quite a few schemes. Um, the main one being the Securities Exchange Company. <laughs> So he gets people to invest uh, in this boom and then he takes their money and then he gets the next round of people to invest, um, promising them the returns from, uh, you know, he promises the first group the returns and that it looks like the fund is growing because more and more people are investing in it. But in fact, there's no real growth. And so we have Ponzi um, in America. We also had Sarah Emily Howe, uh, who founded the Ladies Deposit Company of Boston. <laughs> She was imprisoned for three years. Um, in Germany, they had Adele Spitzeder, who also uh, made a private bank, Spitzerdisch, private bank. Um, but I guess I just wanted to add this because, you know, whenever there are have been boom times in America over the past hundred years, there's also like outright scams. And we actually are living in a time of considerable scamming uh, online <laughs> on YouTube or whatever you can figure out uh, cryptocurrencies and um, various swindles of various kinds. So, um, you know, hold on to your wallets, people, because uh, this has a long history. So if you if you hear something that's too good to be true about uh, crypto right now, <laughs> remember that Ponzi and uh, Sarah Howe have beat you to it. Yeah, but Ponzi did not have access to the, you know, the upper class. He he just wasn't one of them. So he couldn't go the usual route, which would have been to bribe the politicians. That's right. And, That's you know, right. legitimize everything you're doing. Right. Yeah. Hey, well. Meanwhile, so you, labor, labor oh, yeah, work. price. You were going to... Yeah, so workers, um, just to some numbers on the workers. So immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, especially, there were quite a few from Germany and Sweden, too. Like, uh, apparently, there were 700,000 German and Scandinavian owned farms in the 1900 census alone. And these were 
non-existent before uh, for the most part. So, uh, but like immigrants from Hungary, Poland, uh, Italy, Ireland, lots of Eastern Europeans uh, coming to the US. Uh, uh, you know, you can divide these numbers by 10 and that you get similar things for Canada, by the way, right? I mean, um, there was also huge waves of immigration to Canada from these same sources in this yep. time. Uh, but yeah, the, the number I've seen in a book uh, called Settlers by Sakai, Jay Sakai, uh, from 1800s to 1914, from the 1880s to 1914, 15 million uh, immigrants arrive, mostly from uh, Southern and Eastern Europe. And there's a book apparently that makes a big splash in 1904 called Poverty by an author named Robert Hunter. And here's a quote from that book. The poor are almost entirely foreign-born. Great colonies, foreign in language, customs, habits, and institutions are separated from each other and from distinctly American groups on national and racial lines. These colonies often make up the more portion, the main portion of our so-called slums. Um, I'm trying to do like an American voice from that time. How does that, how, how did I do? <laughs> um, just go with your own. Um the, much of the workforce uh, at this time is actually unemployed for most of the year. So it's like they hire you on and off. Um, it's totally like peace, peace yeah, day, meal. day labor. Yeah. Um, the, a lot of the immigrants, are, you know, so like uh, Zinn said about terracing. So there's lots of race theory that's just like invented on the spot to make sure that these people are racially subordinated as well. Um, the St. Paul, Minnesota district attorney uh, said a Finn, meaning someone from Finland, is a Mongolian and not a white person. Uh, that's uh, that's um, quoted in Sakai. So the Saturday Evening Post, uh, 1920, had an editorial that basically said, unless immigration is restricted, America is going to become a hybrid race of people as worthless and futile as the good for nothing mongrels of Central America and Southeastern Europe. Uh, another race, another writer says, I'm no race worshiper, but the, if the master race of this continent is subordinated or overrun with the communistic and revolutionary races, it will be in grave danger of social disaster. Um, so, <laughs> so there's a strategy which is advocated by these same people to break up the nationalistic and racial groups by combining their members for America. So it is a it is, there are, I guess, on the more progressive end of this type of racial thinking, and I mean literally progressives because they were, pro this is the progressive era. Um, you had people like DuPont, I think of the DuPont chemical fortune and uh, uh, Keller from the government, and they create basically adult education night schools to try to Americanize people. Um, so they're trying to teach them that America is the shining city on the hill and it's the greatest. And, you know, there's English classes too and so on. Um, that goes on until about 1921, 100 years ago, year of the Tulsa riot. Um, and all along the KKK and other more regressive forces are mobilizing against the, uh, the East European workers and these Americanization efforts. Yeah, and the, the KKK is mainstream. Yeah, they're not, they're not hiding in the shadows. They have four million members. They uh, they did a march on Washington, wearing their uh, lovely white hoods. Well, see, this is interesting because, like, I was reading Marcus Garvey, um, you know, and we'll we'll get back to Marcus Garvey in the World War, Interwar World War One Two series, 
But Garvey, you know, people always people today criticize Garvey because he met with the KKK leader to talk about like separating the races. And he had a public meeting with the KKK. He didn't like meet with them in private. He had like a public meeting with the KKK leader. Um, and and he he was he was like criticized for it at the time. And he said, You 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 want me to uh not meet with the KKK leader because the KKK, what the KKK believes is so bad about us. But what the KKK believes about us is what most Americans believe about us. Uh, so that was, he was making that point, which is the KKK was completely mainstream at this time. And he's like, yeah. it would, we shouldn't have any illusions about, you know, what white people in this country think about black people um, in the 1910s and 20s and in 30s. Um, so yeah, t- fully terrorist and fully um, uh, pit against one another. Uh, Engels writes at this time, uh, the bourgeoisie need merely to hold out passively for the heterogeneous elements of the working masses to fall apart again. And uh, Du Bois uh, famously said, um, although the white workers received a low wage, they were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white, which he then calls a public and psychological wage. So even the, so they'll settle for lower wages because of racial, um, you know, considerations. And they know, that at least they know that these inferior races are making less, you know? Yeah. There's some kind of satisfaction to know that the undeserving are not making as much, even if your situation is not good, um, which I guess is a mainstay of conservative um, thinking. Yeah. So, um, for example, there's a struggle in the, late 19th century for the eight-hour workday. So the National Labor Union makes this call right after the Civil War ends. Um, And there are millions of workers taking part. Uh, And there are laws passed in California in 1868, in New York in 1872. But according to Sakai, again, the whole movement folded like wet cardboard uh, between 1873 and 1878. Having said that, they, the National Labor Union and the struggle for the eight-hour workday did bring uh, American organized labor onto the scene. Um, one leader from the San Francisco Trades Assembly says, a few years ago, the working population of California were in a chaotic state, disorganized and at the mercy of the capitalists. Today, nearly every branch of skilled industry has its own union, fixing its own rate of wages and regulating its domestic differences and when he said skilled industry (laughs) again he means basically white workers Um, Mm. so and the other contradiction here which um, you know makes labor progress harder in the US than I guess the rest of Europe uh, is that you know labor is simultaneously struggling against the boss and also struggling against these dirty um other races who are stealing our work. So they're struggling for the eight hour workday and they're agitating against coolies and Chinese laborers. Um, And eventually the NLU promotes uh, Charles O'Connor as their presidential candidate in the presidential elections. They create the national labor reform party. And uh, O'Connor is actually was an advocate of slavery. So (laughs) Um, nice. the the national labor union does not actually 
depth very far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the bosses don't even have to bother dividing and conquer. Uh, let them do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's scary. So, um, some stuff on the Irish. So the Irish in um, the Irish in Ireland actually were concerned about the political position of the Irish in uh, America. They kind of got a feeling that they were not they were diverging a little bit politically. So there's a petition of seventy thousand Irish people in Ireland in 1841, and they tell. The, the petition has this text. Irish men and Irish women, treat the colored people as your equals, your brethren. By all your memories of Ireland, continue to love liberty, hate slavery, cling by the abolitionists, and in America you will do honor to the name of Ireland. Which, uh, unfortunately, um, the Irish, you know, uh, often Irish organized leadership of the Irish community in the U.S. Uh, did not take those positions. Um, uh, remind me about the Fenian, uh, the Fenian movement and their invasion of Canada. Oh, <laughs> yeah. The Fenian Brotherhood, or, or also known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB, uh, they wanted an independent Republican Ireland. And they thought that one way that they could achieve this was to strike at Britain in Canada. So there were, wow, I don't know how many Irish served in the American Civil War. Lots, lots of uh, Germans and lots of Irish ended up serving, you know, rich white Americans bought exemptions or bought replacements. And then when the draft happened, we mentioned this in the Civil War episode, uh, you know, I think when they announced the draft in New York, the first names off the list were all Irish. So the Irish fought in the Civil War. They've had the experience of war. They've, you know, learned how to fight. And they got the idea that they could strike a blow against Britain by uh, invading Canada and holding it hostage for the freedom of Ireland. Uh, It was pretty serious from a a British-Canadian perspective. I mean, it didn't turn out to be huge (laughs) But among the... Apparently, among the weapons that they uh, deployed was the so-called Fenian Ram, which is the precursor of the modern submarine um, and only became part of the U.S. Navy after the, the design was originally, I think, conceived as part of the uh, invasion of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we can thank the Irish uh, for um, Irish Republicans for submarines. Oh. Not the, great, not the greatest <laughs> legacy. Um, the hunt for Red October, not possible without, um, without Irish uh, ingenuity. So sure. yeah, the, the, the struggle for the eight-hour workday was part of a big strike wave um, during this kind of depression of 1873 and right. to 77. Um, and this is when some of the anti-union methods, I mean, the overall scheme of uh, racial division was probably the best weapon that the U.S. had. But the overall scheme of tactics, as far as like tactical innovation and anti-labor tactical innovation, uh, they're remarkable. The bosses come up with lots of things. The blacklist. Very sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah, It's not just breaking strikes. There's 
way more to it. There's a lot of thought and depth that went into this. So yeah. by by the 1890s, most of the country's railways were concentrated in six huge systems. Four of these completely or partially controlled by the House of Morgan, and the other two by the bankers uh, Kuhn, Loeb, and company. So here's J.P. Morgan. There's a famous name. Uh, he was the son of a banker, and before the Civil War, he sold stocks for the railroads on commission. During the Civil War, though, he got his big break. He bought 5,000 rifles for $3.50 each, and he bought them from an army arsenal, and the price was low because they were defective. They would shoot off the thumb of the soldier using them. So naturally, he sold them to a general who was in the field, for $22 a piece. So this detail that they were defective was noted by a congressional committee in the small print of a very obscure report, but a federal judge upheld the deal as a valid legal contract. So there's uh, the patriotism of J.P. Morgan. Uh, he did not do military service. He paid $300 to a substitute. Uh, others who did this... John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Philip Armour, Jay Gould, and James Mellon. Mellon's father told him, a man may be a patriot without risking his own life or sacrificing his health. There are plenty of lives less valuable. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that's spelling it out. Uh, it reminds me of a, a modern... Uh, gosh, which film was it now? Michael Moore, uh, when he interviewed all the members of Congress to find out how many of them read, had, the, read the bills. No, how many oh. of them had uh, sons or daughters who were serving with American forces overseas. Oh, right. And I believe the answer was from all of the Senate and all of the Congress, uh, one. <laughs> yeah. Drexel, Morgan and Company... Uh, got a contract from the U.S. government to float a bond issue of $260 million. The government obviously could have sold the bonds directly. Instead, they got Drexel Morgan and Company to do it and paid them $5 million in commission. That's how you make money. Uh, John D. Rockefeller started as a bookkeeper in Cleveland, became a merchant, uh, accumulated a little bit of capital, and decided that oil was the coming thing. So he bought his first oil refinery in 1862. Uh, 1870 set up Standard Oil Company of Ohio. He made secret agreements with railroads to ship his oil with them if they gave him rebates. So basically discounts on all of their prices. And that um, drove his competitors out of the business. They just couldn't compete because he was you know, not paying the same uh, fees that they were. So it's so, this integrated machine of like railways, oil, steel, coal. Oh yeah, and the vertical, government, vertical and the government to break yes, up the sure. unions and the workers. Yeah. yeah. So, just a reminder: ver vertical integration is uh, expansion in a different way. Horizontal integration would be having franchises all over the country, but vertical integration is connecting all of the sources of the materials that you need. So if you have a steel mill 
Well, the steel comes from iron ore from mines, so buy the mines. And then instead of paying a railroad to ship your ore to your steel mill, buy the railroad. And then, of course, with the steel from your steel mill, you can build more railways because you can lay down the rails and, you know, build the locomotives and all the rest of it. So you end up having a chain of uh, industries that are all connected and supplying each other. And you cut out the middlemen and you pay yourself and, and you profit yourself. Uh, I guess the modern example of both would be McDonald's. So not only do they have franchises all over the world, but they also own, you know, cattle farms. Uh, they, they make their own packaging. I think virtually everything that they sell is produced by McDonald's with the possible exception of ketchup, didn't they? Yeah, Heinz is... Try to make their own and then have to back off on that. <laughs> yeah, it's the trouble is when your monopoly interferes with somebody else's monopoly and then the government doesn't quite know what to do. Right. Oh, there was a lot of antitrust uh, talk, a lot of antitrust legislation, but the reality is that guys like Rockefeller expanded, broke the competition, one independent oil refiner said, if we don't sell to Rockefeller, he'll crush us. And there was only one buyer on the market, and they had to agree to his terms. Uh, he was not above uh, using other methods. Uh, a, a rival refinery in Buffalo was rocked by a small explosion <laughs> arranged Still by Standard Oil officials. This doesn't sound like the oper unfettered operation of the free market to me. Uh, Adam Smith would not be impressed. No, <laughs> no. Um, by 1899, Standard Oil Company was uh, not just an oil company. It was a holding company that controlled the stock of many other uh, con uh, companies. Rockefeller's fortune was estimated at about $200 million dollars. That's in 1899. Yeah, which is like... And he didn't stop the biggest, there. He expanded yeah. into iron, copper, coal, shipping, and banking, the Chase Manhattan Bank. Uh, his profits were about $81 million a year, and the Rockefeller fortune soared to about $2 billion. Andrew Carnegie, if you know that name, was a telegraph clerk, uh, then secretary to the head of the Pennsylvania railroad and then a wall street broker selling railroad bonds uh he went to london in 1872 saw the new method of producing steel the bessemer method returned to the u.s and built himself uh, a million dollar steel plant um, foreign competition was kept out conveniently by congress who set a very high tariff by 1880 carnegie was producing about 10,000 tons of steel a month and making about a million and a half a year in profit. By 1900, he was making 40 million a year. And apparently at a dinner party, uh, he agreed to sell his steel company to JP Morgan. He scribbled the price on a note, $492 million. So I was just looking on um, Wikipedia, the highly, highly respectable um, Wikipedia. <laughs> Uh, but uh, there's a there's a list where they try to do inflation adjusted uh, fortunes, the biggest fortunes of all time. And Rockefeller and Carnegie are number two and three for the wealthiest of all time. So right. these are bigger than Bezos or um, whatever right now. 
yeah and those are just the like the, the tip of the iceberg those guys are at the top but it that was the same thing happening in industry after industry uh zinn calls them shrewd efficient businessmen building empires choking out competition maintaining high prices keeping wages low and using government subsidies they were the first beneficiaries of the welfare state this isn't capitalism as adam smith envisioned this is basically using the government to build yourself a monopoly uh, American Telegraph, uh, Telephone and Telegraph, that's AT&T. They had a, a monopoly on the nation's telephone system. Uh, International Harvester, 85% of all farm machinery made by them. And it's interesting too, because from an economic perspective, this, this, coll- this collusion, I mean, this kind of state planning with, uh, with the billionaires or whatever the titans industrial titans of the time it's a it's kind of coordination that uh enables them the americans to pull ahead in industrial terms of uh of britain because britain actually is still doing a lot more laissez-faire um stuff uh than than this at least on the island um so at this time through this kind of method the U.S. is, uh, you know, the second industrial revolution. They're pulling ahead. They've pulled ahead by the end of this of everyone. Um, but Germany is also doing something similar. Yes. And Germany and the U.S. are now the most advanced economies. Yes. Um, thanks to I, these kinds of things. Yeah. But don't forget the American advantages. Yeah. Huge. They've got endless resources and they've got, you know, millions of immigrants desperate for work and yeah. that will accept low wages. So that's all part of it. And your friend Karl Marx uh, described the behavior of the United States as uh, the ideal capitalist state, pretending neutrality to maintain order, but actually serving the interests of the rich. The rich don't always agree among themselves. They, They sometimes dispute over policies. Oh, yeah, that's why you'll always need a government. That's what I was saying. You'll always need a government, and it's not to redistribute wealth. It's to mediate disputes between different wealthy and powerful um, interests. Yes, but they they want to be certain that anyone who gets their, uh, you know, gets into the White House will be uh, sympathetic or will understand (laughs) their needs. So there's a, a feeling out process with any new candidate. Uh, Grover Cleveland ran for president in 1884, and there was a feeling that he was opposed to monopolies and, and the big corporations, uh, whereas Uh-oh. the Republican Party was more uh, pro-wealth. Um, Cleveland won, and uh, Jay Gould sent him a telegram. I feel that the vast business interests of the country will be entirely safe in your hands and Gould was right Cleveland went out of his way to um, assure the industrialists that you know they shouldn't be afraid of him Uh, no harm shall come to any business interest as the result of administrative policy so long as I am president a transfer of executive control from one party to another does not mean any serious disturbance of existing conditions well that's completely changed now 
Right, exactly. No. <laughs> That's the amazing thing is that it has not changed at all, right? The transfer of power from Republicans to Democrats may uh, drive 75 million Americans into a frenzy, but the business interests are completely comfortable with the changeover. You know, it might mean a slightly smaller tax break for them, but, you know, it's going to be business as usual. Meanwhile, Zinn points out, in 1887, uh, there was a drought in Texas. Texas farmers were uh, struggling to buy seed grain, and there was a bill to appropriate $100,000 for relief to Texas farmers, and Cleveland used his presidential veto to block it. He said, federal aid in such cases encourages the expectation of paternal care on the part of the government and weakens the sturdiness of our national character. <laughs> Sounds like yeah. our um, McDonald, who was making similar anti-food <laughs> for people arguments. Uh, well, you going. still hear them today. Yeah. You know, we can't give money to poor people. They'll just expect handouts. No, we <laughs> but can we help. can give massive handouts <laughs> and bailouts to, uh, you know. Uh, Cleveland also uh, was facing trouble. There was a, uh, a depression in 1893 and a bit of a, bit of a panic. Uh, there was a, de a demonstration of unemployed men who came to Washington. They were called Coxey's Army. So Cleveland used the U.S. Army to break up their protest and then used the Army to break up a national strike on the railroads the following year. So business wow. doesn't have to break the strikes. The government will do it for them. Yeah, so there's there's the company police, you know, the, the famous Pinkertons. So they're specific police forces just for surveilling and breaking up strikes. Uh, they call in the National Guard if things get big. Yeah. Um, they'll lock you out. Uh, and of course, they blacklist uh, union organizers and, and people like that. Um, there were, I mean, with such a regime, though, uh, of, of, uh, <laughs> of uh, violence and accumulation, all you can do is resist. So you kind of have to resist. And so there was a lot of uh, union activity and, and, and even violent um, strikes during this period. So, um, you know, the industrial workers of the world, uh, that's a, a little bit later. The most active, the biggest activity was 1905 to 1920, but it's still kind of in this period. And they had, they were the anarchists. So they were very anarchist oriented. They were like, they had this belief in one big union. They didn't believe in having a party or a leadership, uh, just, uh, spontaneous, you know, resistance strikes, and then eventually we'll have one big strike and take over society. <laughs> That's the anarchist dream, you know, spontaneous, uh, spontaneous activity. Um, so they had like underground committees. They, they create in 1914, they created a, an 800 mile picket line from Kansas to South Dakota, but they were ultimately crushed um, by the uh, kind of violent, um, state system that that was imposed uh and they they def they they were unable to do anything uh even though they were opposed to world war one um you know they quotes like uh 
Walter Neff. We are against the war, but are not organized and can do nothing. Uh, Bill Haywood of the IWW says, I'm at a loss to definite steps to be taken against the war. Um, you know, they would they say in their newspaper, the point may be made here that we should all be interested in stopping the production of war munitions, but that's only a dream. The only thing in, the workers in these factories can do uh, is try to improve their condition. So there's mass arrests, people convicted, um, prison terms, um, and so on. Uh, there's also the other big thing that they try to do at this point is the populist party. Um, and the populist party is one of the exceptions to the rule of racial um, divide. So some of their leaders, including Tom Watson, uh, argued for unity between black sharecroppers, black farmers and white farmers to try to get a better deal um, from big business. Uh, they were also, I think the populists were also heavily um, into like monetary theory. So they were against the gold standard. There was a lot of uh, like we're gonna be um, we're gonna be crucified on a cross of gold. I think that was a Democrat, William Jennings Bryan. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to mention him. <laughs> uh, not a populist, but I think populist uh, adjacent. I, I, I would. But then Tom Watson, after 1902, changes course. He becomes pro lynching. Um, so he also becomes a plantation owner himself. He says the lynch law is a good law. It shows that a sense of justice lives among the people. So again, the the whole racism thing um, kind of messes up whatever hope the union had. And including Eugene Debs, the famous socialist leader uh, who went to jail for a long time for his opposition of the war. He calls he called Tom Watson. Um, a great man, a heroic soul who fought the power of evil his whole life long in the interests of the common people. And they loved him and honored him. But of course, mm. this is the same guy who said the lynch law is a good law. Um, in the... just, a, just a note about uh, Brian. William Jennings Bryan was uh, three times presidential candidate for the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, he, lo he lost. But he ran on a very confusing platform. It was kind of a mishmash of ideas. He wanted mm -hmm. to uh, get off the gold standard because he thought it was part of the tyranny of you know, the industrialists. He was antitrust, wanted to break up the big monopolies. He was pro-worker. But this is also the guy who jumped into the Scopes monkey trial and argued that uh, parents had the right to set you know, the education of their children. So <laughs> never mind scientific truth or, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of these paradoxes with both the, the populists now and the progressives a little bit later where they're, you know, racist. They believe in racism, like scientific racism. So even when they're like, um, we should help these inferior races, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's still... Uh, it's still not exactly a adequate scientific theory. Um, so as far as the U.S. South goes post-Reconstruction, um, yeah, this is where a lot of black workers... So like the South and the West is where there's a lot of black workers, a lot of um, Mexican workers, Asian workers. And um, this is where the tiering is severe. So um, cotton is still 25% of all exports. Um, by 1914, 50% of black male workers are still working in agriculture. But here's the really crazy thing. Um, after slavery is when black workers are forced out of the skilled um, 
labor. So um, 80% of skilled workers in the U.S. South were black in 1868. By 1900, 20% of skilled workers in the South were black. So they were driven out of all these jobs by white workers who, yeah. So they got these jobs during the Civil War out of necessity, and then after the war, promptly turfed out. Yeah, and I mean, I guess they got the... They were work. There were a lot of skilled workers who were slaves, <laughs> right? Yeah. So they would, you know, people would also rent their uh, slaves, their skilled, you know, carpenters or masons or whatever. They would rent them to other uh, white people. Mm. Um, so there were lots of people with these black people with these skills that um, were then, you know moved like yeah like turfed out of all the all these jobs um after the uh, yeah yeah after the war and after the recon you know especially after reconstruction yeah um coal miners yeah and in the west there's lots of mexican workers so there's a whole you know the mexican-american war they take over all these lands and then they actually import in some cases mexican workers back to work on these lands which is still <laughs> arguably going on yeah. um uh, a lot of the california workers are mexican the majority of um agricultural workers 80 percent of them 90 percent of railroad laborers were mexican at this time 60 percent of miners so it's a kind of a colonial labor force and uh, as far as the pay scale goes there's like a slight pay bump for eastern european uh, and Southern European workers, six they make six to ten dollars per week compared to Mexican or Black workers who are making sixty or seventy cents a day. So it's I don't know, you know, it's a pump bump. But then white workers from you know Anglo or German or Scandinavia, they're in the fifteen to twenty dollars a week. They own homes and vote. So this is the um, this is the things in this is you know we're back to the terracing thing like. I think Zen later says, you know, the American system works by giving just enough to people at different levels so they don't get together with, uh, they don't unite against their oppressors. Yeah, the tears, T I E R S. (laughs) Yeah, they lead to the other kind of tears, I suppose. Yeah, but Zen also points out that the, uh, the employers are not alone in keeping the workers down they they have the governments assisted but but not just you know troops to break up strikes they use legal methods to do this uh zinn quotes a new york banker toasting the supreme court in 1895 i give you gentlemen the supreme court of the united states guardian of the dollar defender of private property enemy of spoliation sheet anchor of the republic what's what's spoliation you know when like poor taxes people take stuff taxes oh yeah or taxes and that was a big one so he's celebrating the 1894 supreme court decision which struck down income tax because it was a direct tax in a five to four decision very controversial the funny thing is there was an income tax during the Civil War, and it lasted until 1872. It was to pay for the war, obviously. Now, populists, like Brian, 
and socialists are pushing for a graduated income tax. That would mean a percentage of your income. But the Supreme Court decided that this could not be allowed because the government was not allowed to tax income from property. Dividends are untaxable. Interest is untaxable. Rent is untaxable. It was deemed unconstitutional. What's the principle they're trying to argue here? Well, the principle that they're trying to argue is that you cannot uh, double dip, I guess. So you have a flat tax, everybody pays the same, and you cannot tax, you know, uh, by percentage, and you cannot tax property. Right. That's it. (laughs) And then they met resistance in government. So the Speaker of the House, a guy named Reed, reorganized the rules to stifle troublesome minorities. They just arranged the time you were allotted uh, by party and only the leading figures could, you know, use that time and they would decide who got to speak. So if you're going to stand up and say something, you know, difficult or embarrassing, we're just not going to let you speak. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yep. And that's how you keep control in a, um, well, so-called democracy. Well, it's not a democracy. I think people... There have been a lot of debates about that recently where people have said it's not a democracy, people. It's a republic. Republics are... Yep. A republic is, is yeah. not the same. And this is also the era when they mutilated the 14th Amendment. So instead of using it as a protection for black Americans, they developed it as a protection for corporations. Corporations are yeah. persons, legal persons. Yep. So that's a U.S. thing? that but Doesn't Britain come to the same conclusion? Um, no, I think Britain does it quite differently. Okay. Remember they had to give under pressure in the, the 1830s and 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, over and over again. Whereas the American Supreme Court basically stands to protect business, limit taxes. Mm-hmm. In, in uh, 1886, Farmers were irate at the rates charged by the railroads. So they went to their state governors, they went to their state legislatures and argued that the rates were extortionate. So uh, some states passed laws to regulate the railroad rates. And then they were overturned by the Supreme Court. In 1886, the Supreme Court did away with 230 state laws that had been passed to regulate corporations. Wow. And they did this by using the 14th Amendment, accepting the argument that corporations were persons and that their money was property, protected by uh, the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment. There were... um, Uh, Let's see. Of all the cases brought before the Supreme Court dealing with the 14th Amendment between 1890 and 1910, 19 of them dealt with blacks. 288 dealt with corporations. Wow. So this is uh, 
part of the whole scheme. If you're going to keep control, it has to be more than force. You can't call out the army at every turn. That's Russia. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, and then and that's what happened to Russia, right? I mean, yeah. look what happened when you do that. You, so Zinn says that the communists. American version was even more sophisticated and, and had greater depth and ingenuity. So what you need is for the people to buy into the system. Even though their own interests suggest that they should rebel against this control, you have to teach them that the way things are is correct. And that is done, that teaching is done in schools, in churches, and in popular literature. We're, we're now talking about a literate population, a very literate population, who read. So you give them books and articles that tell them that poverty is a sign of personal failure, that wealth is an indication of superiority, and that the way you climb into the ranks of the wealthy is by an extraordinary effort and extraordinary luck. They don't tell you. Well, that's totally, yeah, that ideology is totally not, you know, present anymore. (laughs) Right. It's good good to have this in our historical show so people know this, this, these strange beliefs people used to have a hundred and some years ago. Yeah. So Zinn gives the example Uh, in the years after the Civil War, of a man named Russell Conwell. He was a graduate of uh, Yale Law School. He was a minister and the author of best-selling books. He went on a lecture tour, and he gave the same lecture called Acres of Diamonds more than 5,000 times to audiences across the country. So probably several million people heard his lectures, Acres of Diamonds. And his message was, anyone could get rich if you tried hard enough because everywhere that you look there are acres of diamonds so here's a little sample of his talk I say that you ought to get rich it is your duty to get rich the men who get rich may be the most honest men you find in the community 98 out of 100 of the rich men of America are honest that is why they are rich That is why they are trusted with money. That is why they carry on great enterprises and find plenty of people to work with them. It's because they are honest men. I sympathize with the poor, but the number of poor who are to be sympathized with is very small. To sympathize with a man whom God has punished for his sins is to do wrong. Let us remember there is not a poor person in the United States who was not made poor by his own shortcomings. Yeah, it's all there. It's all direct. And there's um there's a book uh called Promised Land: My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture where she talks about uh self-help books. Apparently there was one called uh Samuel Smiles Self-Help: uh, Inspirational Stories About Hardworking Men Rising Through the Ranks 1859. The only book it didn't outsell apparently was the Bible. <laughs> wow. JK Chesterton wrote a series of books apparently in 1913. The the self-help stuff. Tony Robbins, I guess. Is that his name? Tony yeah. Robbins. Well, he's yeah. more of an inspirational speaker. I don't know if he's going to tell you that 
you know, poverty is a sin. Although uh, maybe it's uh, it always goes there. It always goes there. There's yeah, never... I just remember the uh, governments in in Ontario of the 1980s and 90s with their uh, rage against welfare bubs and yeah, yeah. you know. Well, in the U.S., it was choice. welfare queens, and it was racial, you know, super racialized like uh, imagery. Yeah. So Zinn points out that this fellow Conwell was one of the founders of Temple University. Rockefeller donated to colleges all over the country and helped to found the University of Chicago. Carnegie gave money to colleges and to libraries. Johns Hopkins was founded by a millionaire merchant and other millionaires like Cornelius Vanderbilt, Ezra Cornell, James Duke, and Leland Stanford created universities in their own names. So part of this is uh, very public philanthropy. Look at me, how nice I am. I give money, you know, to these good causes. But also those universities are going to produce teachers, doctors, lawyers, administrators, engineers, technicians, and all those people who will contribute to keeping the system going to be loyal yeah. supporters of the way mm -hmm. things are. Which and is... they're not uh, they're not buying a, ca a copy of Das Kapital for every uh, library either. <laughs> uh, no, they're but they're endowing. Yeah, they're endowing economics departments and they're endowing you know things that are taught the way that they uh, the yeah. way that serves them. And I think we addressed the topic of. Um, public education and you know the way you organize your public schools uh, we address that in, in the British Industrial Revolution it's very much the same in the US yeah so you yeah keep... and then you know we we'll have lots to say about the theory of imperialism or I will I don't know <laughs> I'll just I'll, I don't want to speak for you Dave but I'll have lots to say about the theory of imperialism and Lenin and Hobson and these these ideas that they had you know we could talk about it in the scramble for africa context and then in the in the world war one context but um you know one of the one of the mainstays of their i their the concept is that you're if you have um an elite that's that's accumulated in incredible amounts of wealth that wealth becomes a problem like holding that wealth how do you hold it do you hold it in gold do you hold it in land what do you hold the wealth in that won't um you know depreciate right yeah. and and uh so that's where they start to look for um what to do with their surplus and that's how perversely you know one of the main drivers of imperialism is like the search for highly profitable investment opportunities um, and uh, in the poorer uh, parts of the world, so and safe investment opportunities. Yeah, well, safe, but it's also it's you know usually what happens is or what happened historically in the in these cases is they've they've uh, exhausted the fast profits um, in in their home countries. So like the profit rates, uh, you know, in Congo compared to Belgium. Uh, are are huge and and likewise you know the colonies you're you're gonna make more because they're like the first the the green field profits are always higher than the than the profits of like steady you know steady business right, right. so um 
And just to say, by nineteen, by in eighteen seventy, the U.S. was the fourth economy in the world. Um, by nineteen twenty-two, the U.S. had more than the wealth of Britain, Germany, France, Italy, Russia, Belgium, and Japan combined. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, you by by the turn of the century, by the beginning of the twentieth century, the U.S. is definitely ready to engage in uh, a little of the old imperialism. Mm-hmm.